Our first speaker will be Marnie Sandweiss, who is professor of history at Princeton University. She received her PhD in history from Yale University and began her career as a photography curator. Marnie has been the recipient of fellowships from the NEH, the American Council of Learned Societies, the Rockefeller Foundation, and most recently, she was a scholar in residence at the Huntington Library. Among many works, she is the co-editor of the Oxford History of the American West, which won uh, the Western Heritage Award and the, is it Kathy or K.E.? Coy. Well, I was pretty far away from that. The Coy Western History Association Prize. Her 2002 book, Print the Legend, Photography in the American West, received the Organization of American Historians Ray Allen Billington Award for the best book in American frontier history and the William P. Clements Award for the best nonfiction book on Southwestern America. And her 2009, Passing Strange, a Gilded Age tale of love and deception across the color line, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and was named one of the top 10 books of the year by the New York Times. Um, as Josh mentioned, I, I spent the early part of my career as a photography curator. But I thought I would speak to you tonight uh, with my other hat on to speak to you as a 19th century American historian as we begin here to collectively think about the continuing challenges of Civil War photographs. And I want to focus on them this evening as historical documents. And I think we might start by acknowledging this. It's easier to write a good history of the war with Civil War photographs than it is to write a full history from them for two reasons. First, because of the fragmentary nature of the record, which I don't think we fully grappled with. And second, because we still know so little about how these photographs functioned in their own time to shape and engage public opinion. Together, these two things mean that most historians continue to use Civil War images as illustrations, mere visual affirmation for ideas developed from other sources, then as time-bound primary source documents with the potential to illuminate more complex events. So let me speak first to the challenges posed by the unevenness of the photographic record. As William Frasinito wrote some time ago, the vast majority of campaigns during the Civil War went completely unrecorded by any photographers. Indeed, the Eastern Theater of the War and the Army of the Potomac in particular were heavily documented, while remote episodes like Sheridan's Shenandoah campaign went completely unphotographed. Moreover, Confederate field photography virtually stops after 1861, so our image of the war is one-sided. Photographs more easily let us visualize the movement of northern troops than of Confederate ones, to visualize northern officers on the battlefield, as you see here, than of their southern counterparts. Historians need to think more, I think, about the ways in which this unevenness of the record has inflected the telling of the war. Has the mortar dictator, for example, gotten undue attention simply because we have several good photographs of it, including this one from Alexander Gardner's great photographic sketchbook of the war? It saw limited action in the siege of Petersburg and seems to have spent the final six months of the war in storage. Conversely, might we have had different stories in our history books if historians had had, had access to this recently identified Antietam image, the only known vintage print of the demolished Confederate battery near Sharpsburg, September 19, 1862, just recently located in the Taylor Collection at the Huntington Library. In that same collection is a small photograph of the Battle of Antietam in progress. Can it be that all this time there really has been a photograph of the war that actually depicts a battle scene, albeit from a safe distance? 
After all these years, we've still not learned all that's out there. And the extant photographic record is spotty. That's a given here. But it's also true that historians and photo researchers have returned to the same well again and again, reproducing pictures from the Gardner sketchbook or the easily accessed collections at the Library of Congress, rather than fanning out to do some of the hard digging and detective work. But despite an intriguing image or two, the Gardner sketchbook gives us scant access to the experience of, say, African Americans during the war. This Isaac Bonsell image from Chattanooga offers so many more possibilities, but now also in the Huntington collection, it's remained little known. The turn to the digital means has made many more images more available, more available than ever before. But despite what our students think, not all of world knowledge, not even all of the Civil War photographs, and certainly not this one, can be found with the flick of a computer key. So if we must first consider which photographs out of the overall corpus of images have been used to shape our stories, we must also be attentive to how they've been used. The Civil War dead were photographed only about half a dozen times in four years. The effect of this is not so much to have presented a one-sided view of the violence, because as is well known now, photographers like Alexander Gardner, whose picture you see here, seem to have had few compunctions about using the same body to represent a union and then a Confederate casualty. The more insidious effect has been to encourage the synodoctic use of such images, with the handful of images of war casualties standing in for hundreds of thousands more. The use of one image to represent the experience of other unphotographed people perhaps reached its apogee in Ken Burns' Civil War series, which Josh just alluded to, a series in which portraits of some soldiers were used to visualize the words of others. Good drama, perhaps but poor history. So let me just wrap up this point. The lacuna in the record, the spottiness of that record, the still uncertain scope of that record presents us with challenges. Not just the challenge of probing less well-known archives, but the challenge of trying to understand how the limited and biased photographic record has shaped both public memory of a complex event and the writing of scholars making us more likely to narrate some stories at the expense of others. The study of Civil War memory, particularly since the publication of David Blight's Race and Reunion in 2001, has become something of a growth industry. But to graduate students in this room looking for a research topic, I'd say that we still have much more to understand about the, how the extant and limited photographic record has shaped popular understanding of the war directed historians to one topic at the expense of others, dictated the content of popular films and coffee table books that continue to shape social memory. My second big point this evening speaks to a different sort of opportunity for would-be scholars. We still have insufficient knowledge of how the Civil War photographs circulated in their own time and how they shaped public opinion. Countless books assert rhetorically that the Civil War is a key moment in the history of photojournalism, or war photography, or documentary photography. Perhaps. But I don't think we've fully demonstrated that this is the case for all the times we've asserted it. We just do not know enough about how the pictures worked in their particular historical moment. Many, many of you will have heard or read that review from the New York Times of October 20th, 1862, about the exhibition of Gardner's photographs of the dead at Matthew Brady's studio in New York. Mr. Brady has done something to bring home to us 
the terrible reality and earnestness of war. If he has not brought bodies and laid them in our dooryards and along the streets, he has done something very like it. There is a terrible fascination about it that draws one near these pictures and makes him loath to leave them. You will see hushed, reverend groups standing around these weird copies of Carnage, bending down to look in the pale faces of the dead, chained by the strange spell that dwells in dead men's eyes. Compelling prose. But I think we still have much to learn about how these pictures were received. We know very little about how people encountered Civil War images in stationary stores or galleries or fairs or in the privacy of their own parlors. How they even encountered or collected these photographs, even in military camps. The scholars who have been working on the history of the book, I think, have much to teach us about what we might learn by trying to probe more into publication numbers, circulation patterns, economic markets, or the response of viewers. Similarly, we still have much to learn about how Civil War photographs competed with other forms of visual imagery. Many of you may be familiar with what happened when the Civil War photographs were turned into prints in the popular press. The vivid and horrifying detail got translated into a pattern of loosely drawn lines. But how often did even this happen? My own quick survey suggests that most photographs engraved for reproduction during the war itself were portraits. There was still a broad cultural uncertainty about what photographs could do. If they seemed a sturdy and reliable study for portraits, they still seemed less useful somehow as studies for more complex events. Unlike prints, photographs could not condense action, highlight decisive or pivotal moments, easily make use of familiar symbolic vocabularies, or utilize color to heighten public appeal and narrative drama. Printmakers often embellished the photographic originals to make them more narrative. And I show you here George Barnard's view of where General McPherson fell, and here the version of it that appeared in Harper's Weekly. Printmakers sometimes claimed to have photographic sources when it seems uncertain they had any at all. And again, another uh, image from Harper's showing General Fremont on a horse. If you can read the caption on the far right, it does note that this is from a photograph. Now, why would this printmaker claim a photographic source for this print? No photograph could have captured these prancing horses. But do we see here an indication of the ways in which the very claim to a photographic source might make viewers trust an image all the more? We may value the eyewitness veracity of the Civil War photographs, but it's not at all clear that viewers of the time necessarily did. So which had more appeal, this image of Gettysburg or this one. This print of the killing of Colonel Ellsworth and then the killing of his killer in Alexandria, Virginia in May of 1861? Or this photograph of the building where the shooting happened, the opening image of the Gardner sketchbook, and a photo photograph that needed a very lengthy caption to make apparent its narrative import. Civil War photographs competed for public attention in a vast and complicated visual marketplace they circulated as actual physical artifacts. And there's much more to learn about how they got published, sold, and traded, how they got consulted in shops and galleries, on battlefields, in living rooms. Eventually, photography does become a tool of mass communication. But that's later, some decades after the end of the war, when the emergence of a halftone reproduction technology allows photographs to be reproduced with ease. During the war and its immediate aftermath, I'm not sure photography can fairly be characterized as a medium of mass communication. 
It's still competing with imaginative prints. And to study photography in isolation without consideration of those competing images that circulated in far greater numbers is to miss an important piece of the story. I don't have all the numbers. I don't know if anybody does. But if I had to bet, I'd wager that Americans in the 1860s and 70s spent far more money on popular lithographic prints of the war than on photographs. We might be seduced by the power of these photographic images. But as Josh just suggested, I think our widespread fascination with them may be something that has actually grown over the years since they were first produced. So for the sake of argument, I think I'll end with a provocative statement, which I hope we can address later. If this is a decisive moment in the history of American photography, I think the proof is yet to be laid out on the table. And therein lies an opportunity for many a historian. Thank you. <laughs>